Good morning. Glad that you are here. If you have your notes, go ahead and grab those. You'll need a pen or a pencil. Uh, you can also, online, um, we have the U version of the notes, and you can use um, whatever uh, you've got, a phone or a tablet, however, in order to do the notes that way. Or, if you learn best by listening, hey, God bless you, do it whichever way seems best to you. We start a new series today called When God Seems, and seems is the operative word because it can seem to be a particular thing and not be true. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a place in life, maybe in a relationship or a situation at work or even just uh, uh, at large out in the world, but um, you have an experience and in your mind it seems to be this and then you find out that's not what I thought it was. You can misjudge a situation completely and make a lot of mistakes when you misjudge it that way. So the operative word in our series is when God seems. This weekend we're going to talk about when God seems silent. So I'm going to talk about silence today. I'm hoping that it will help you to understand uh, what it is that can be accomplished in silence, why sometimes the silence can seem to be something when it's really something else. And if that doesn't make sense, give me a second and I'll get into it and kind of show you. But I thought I would start with this idea. Silence is one of those things that can be a double-edged sword. Uh, at times, silence can be the most wonderful thing in the world. But at times, silence can be almost like a punishment. Silence can be something that you desire and that you need and that you can get refreshed in. And silence can be something that's completely exhausting at other times. And it can happen with the same group of people. For instance, when my kids were little, big family, five, um, we never flew anywhere. In fact, I, quite honestly... The first time my kids ever flew, my twins, who were the youngest, who are 25 now, I think those boys were, um, we went to Israel when they were 15, and that's the first time my boys ever flew on an airplane. We just simply couldn't, seven of us flying, imagine, we couldn't do it. So we'd pack them up in the car, and that's how we'd do our vacations. And as they got bigger, the car had to get bigger. We went from a Honda Civic with Amy and Brent to a Suburban by the time we had all of them. And uh, the Suburban was an interesting thing, man. To go on a vacation, uh, normally, if you go here, you've heard me talk about this. Our typical thing for the last 20-some-odd years is that we go to Phoenix in July. <laughs> There's a brilliant move right there. But quite honestly, no one's there in July. Everybody comes to Denver, so we go there. And uh, it's hot, but it's cheap. It's a great place just to hang out. And if you want to swim and just kind of go see movies. It was a wonderful vacation while they were growing up, but we would drive there to drive to Phoenix. It's about 13, 14 hours, something like that. So I packed the Suburban up, and then, of course, the kids were at the age where within moments of being on the road, they would start the whole, don't touch me, don't breathe on me, don't look at me, you're in the wrong seat, how come I know, you know, and just vacation with the, I would crave the silence. So I came up with this idea. They invented a television, one of those little ones that used to have the VCR in the front of it, and it had a plug-in for the lighter. So on our way out of town, hey, look, don't judge me, okay? <laughs> don't, don't judge me on this. We would stop at Walmart on the way out of town. I would use it for seven days and then return it on the way back into town at the same Walmart. I know how terrible that is right there. I, I realize that's a horrible, horrible thing, and I, I recognize you've never done anything that could even relate to uh, my unholiness. So I... Um, we would get that TV, but the, the TV, in order for everybody to watch it, uh, we'd have to set it right between uh, our seats in the front, and the speakers on the TV are on the side of it, not in the front of it. So literally, it would be in this ear for me and in this ear for Chris, and the kids in the back are always saying, turn it up, turn it up. 
And for 11 or 12 hours, man, SpongeBob would just... (laughs) Or some show or some cartoon or some song, and I would just crave, crave, crave the silence. The last big car we bought before they were all gone, a Suburban, came out where it had a video system that pulled down from the roof, and everybody had their own headphones. And I think the best trip I ever took was 11 hours of silence. While they're all listening to their thing, we just enjoyed total silence driving down the road. And silence is golden. Silence is wonderful. Ah, same group of kids. And fast forward a few years. And now they're old enough to drive and go out and be away and have a curfew. And I don't know if your kids ever did this, but mine would bust their curfew from time to time. Yeah, I know, no, no kid's ever done that. God, pastor, first you're a thief at Walmart and now your kids are out of control. I, I know. Um, those same kids, when it got to a certain time past a curfew, now you're craving information. Now the silence that on a vacation was so wonderful, now that silence becomes deadly, yes or no? And your mind goes to all those funny places and you're craving that noise. You know what's really funny now? Our house is empty. I used to think when they were little, it was so noisy, can I tell you? (laughs) Our house was so noisy. Chris would open the windows in the morning and I would close them as soon as I got home because I realized the neighbors could hear. Our house was so noisy, man. (laughs) And now sometimes I just go through the house and yell at Chris just so there's noise (laughs) inside of our house. It's so quiet. It's funny how... Uh, It can be a double-edged sword. At times, silent is so good, and at times, silence can be so bad. And it just depends on the situation and the place that you're at, quite honestly. Silence. So the title of the message simply is, When God Seems Silent. When God Seems Silent. So I want to give you three thoughts just right off the bat, and uh, here's the first First opportunity to fill it in. By the way, why do we do that? I just think it helps you remember. And what we want, you know, we pray this over you. Um, I pray it while I'm preparing the message. I pray it when I'm over here before I walk up. I don't want to just get up and do well. That's not my hope. My hope is to stand up here and the Lord can use it to set you free. Like move you from where you are to more into what God has for you. So that when you leave here, you're more like Jesus. You have more freedom. You're making better decisions, living with fewer regrets, and you're experiencing the life of God. And so this whole silence issue, here's what I know about silence. When you're perceiving that God is being silent in your life, the devil loves to pick at you and tell you that God is not listening or God is not there or God does not care. And what I want for you today is to recognize when you're experiencing silence, one, it could be that it just seems that way. Two, it's not that God has ever left you. But God may be trying to draw you. And instead of thinking the way the enemy wants you to think, because he's a great liar, what I would want to do today is to change the way you see it and understand it so that you walk out of here knowing God is with you. and God is for you and God will never leave you. It's a promise that we have. So these three thoughts on silence, real quick. Uh, First and foremost, whether you think this is true or not, whether you're experiencing this or not, 
I want you to begin to say it because sometimes we just need to say what is true so that our feelings follow truth and not our truth follows our feelings. You understand what I just said? Okay, so, so whether you think this is happening for you or not, I want you to just get this in your head. This is what you need to start saying. You can hear God's voice. You can hear God's voice. You would be surprised at the, the similarity through the years in pastoring, regardless of the age group of people, regardless of the time spent with them, you, you would be surprised at the similarities of things that people struggle with. And one of the things that people struggle with is not feeling like they're hearing the voice of God. I will have so many people who have walked with God. They're faithful to church, faithful to read their Bible, faithful to pray. They love God. They're serving God. But if you ask them, are you hearing God? They'll say, no, not really. So what's going on? More of a monologue. I'm talking, but I'm not really hearing anything in return. And just, let's just be honest about it for a moment. People feel that way a lot. Well, one of the things you have to recognize, man, is that you can hear the voice of God. Jesus himself taught this. Look at this. This is John chapter 10, the second part of verse 4. Jesus is speaking. Uh, the context is his disciples. So if you're a Christ follower, if you love Jesus, man, if you're here this morning, not because you're just like addicted to church, but you got up out of bed and got ready and got here because you love Jesus, then you're a Christ follower. Yay! Yay! And if you're not... Dude, enjoy the donuts, right? Okay, so 10-4, his sheep. So context is the ones who follow him. His sheep follow him. Here's why. Because they know his what? Voice. To know it means you've got to hear it. This isn't some pie in the sky thought. This is an actuality. His sheep, his people can know his voice. You can hear the voice of God. The devil's an excellent liar. And a lie has power when you believe it. So he whispers to you in a situation in order to get you to say yes to it. There's no power to it until you say yes to it. But once you say yes to it, the power of a lie, dude, it could take over your life. People are bound by lies all of the time. So one of the ways we contradict or fight against a lie, you have to use the truth. Here's the truth. Jesus said, my sheep... Know my voice. Even if you don't feel like you're hearing it, what you need to say is the truth. I can hear his voice. That is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom, to hold on to the truth. Here's what the enemy wants, man. To lie to you because if you believe the lie, it will cut you off. No matter how much God is trying to get your attention, it can cut you off. Now, it doesn't affect heaven and hell. It doesn't affect the work of Jesus. And it doesn't affect the fact that God loves you. But it can leave you living a life far less than what God wanted for you. How many believers live with so much less than what God has for them? And you can hear the voice of God. You can train yourself to know that voice above all the other voices. It's possible to hear God's voice. Here's the second one. Silence. Listen, I don't know. I, maybe my wording here uh, isn't good. I just didn't. I, it's the best I could do trying to explain. A, I, I wanted this to be portable for you. Silence isn't presence. Silence isn't presence. And here's what I mean by that. Many times we equate silence with the lack of someone's presence. We think that if they were there, then they would be talking. But just because someone's not talking doesn't mean that they're not there. Anybody in this room that has had children, 
have children, like children, okay? Raising them, here's what I know. You cannot imagine the number of times that I observe my children silently. Um, you know, I, I, maybe it's Confession Sunday or something like that. I'm telling all these things about myself. I, I always think, you know, I try to think, uh, how does a woman perceive what we're doing and how does a man perceive what we're doing? Because you realize they don't perceive it the same way. If you're like, I didn't realize that. Dude, come see me for marriage counseling quickly because <laughs> we perceive things very differently from each other. <laughs> um, I think, you know, I, I try to calculate when I say something, how will a man hear that? When I say something, how will, how will a woman hear that? And I think so many times in church, it can be very geared, it can be very geared feminine and not always masculine. And so I try to like, I, I want to appeal to both of those things, not one of those things. I don't think you want to go all the way here or over here. I think you want to be somewhere here. You're appealing to both of those things. So, so when I make this statement, like uh, what I'm about to say about my kids, I'm trying to think. So like I know a woman's heart's going to go, oh. And I'm wondering if a man's like, what a joker that guy is, you know. So I just, you know, whatever. Um, John Lennon, the great theologian. For some of you, I just helped you make up your mind about whether you're coming back or not. Some of you are like, are we really having that bar next week? What's, what are we, my goodness, stiff and surly. There's a combination for uh, Sunday morning. Um, thanks, man. You know, I just decided years ago, I'm going to have a good time no matter if anybody else does up here, right? I want to go home and be like, yeah, cheers. So, um... I, he wrote a song, and I, again, how it's perceived by both sexes. He wrote a song called Beautiful Boy. There's so many songs that are written for girls. So many songs that are written, you know, a father's heart and, and and his girl. But there's not much written for a father and a son. And I have three sons. And John Lennon, I'm not, I was joking about him being a theologian. Okay, And I don't think he's the guy that you want to emulate. But he did have a talent for writing songs. And he wrote a song in his solo career called Beautiful Boy. And I won't do you the injustice of trying to sing that song for you. But he wrote it about his son. And the first time I heard it, it so touched my heart for my sons. And there were times I would go into their room at nighttime... And I wouldn't wake them. I would just stand there and think, how beautiful. I don't know if that's the right word for a son, but that's how I felt. How, of all the things in life that I messed up, I did really good here. I did really good here. I feel really good about this here. And I never woke them, and I never wanted it to be weird with them. But many times... I would just look at them in silence and adore them. They fully had my heart, even though they may have never heard me say it in that moment. Watching them play. My goodness. They never knew. But I would watch them be so proud of them. And even though they didn't hear me, I was right there with them. Nobody was cheering louder and not saying a word. 
Does that make any sense? Sometimes we perceive silence to equal the absence of presence and the promise of God is that he will never leave you and he will never forsake you and his heart will never change in the way that he feels about you. And even if he is silent while observing you, it's not because he's angry at you. You know the number one place we need reformational thinking? It's the way we think about God. It's why Romans 12, 2 says that we have to have our minds renewed because what we think about God, for instance, the silence can cause us to think all sorts of crazy. When a person doesn't talk to you, what does your mind do? It probably goes, what did I do wrong? Anybody? Four of us. Wow. Yes. (laughs) Connection. You know that's what your mind We always go, what's wrong? And it's so easy with God to think that silence doesn't equal presence. Jesus experienced the silence of the Father. On one of the most significant days for, one of, the most significant day for mankind. Jesus on the cross. We have this account. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is Aramaic. And it translates into English with these words. My God, my God, say it with me. Why have you forsaken me? Look, the Father never forsook Jesus. Never forsook him. But Jesus had such a connection to the Father that for the very first time, he's recognizing that my Father, I'm just not, I'm not hearing like I'm normally used to hearing. And he felt, it wasn't true, but he felt like he was forsaken. Look, Jesus was all God, but he was all man. And the man part felt and feels what you and I have experienced. That's why the Bible says he can be compassionate, because he's experienced what we felt. He knows what it's like when you feel like God's not there. And the reason this is even put in the Bible is to remind you that our feelings are feelings. Listen. There's truth and then there's feelings. And so many people will elevate their feelings to be the truth that they follow. What you really need to do is elevate truth to be the thing that you follow. And then Jesus said, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. What you want is for your feelings to follow truth, not your truth to follow your feelings. Does that make... Okay, a third one, because I will just... I I could get going here and run out of time. Uh, Silence can scream. Sometimes the loudest thing is silence. And I know that sounds like an oxymoron, like how could silence be so loud or how could it scream? Uh, Isaiah was a prophet who had uncannily accurate predictions 800 years before Jesus walked the earth. Now, Jesus as God has existed eternally, but Jesus as a man came to earth approximately 2,000 years ago. And while existing on the earth, he did things that the Bible records in a 33-year time period. They were remarkable. But even, even an incredible connection to that is 800 years before Jesus did those things, the prophet Isaiah was told by the Father, write these things about who Jesus is and what Jesus will do. One of the things I like about prophecy is that it tells us that God knows what's going on. It's a proof So 800 years before Jesus walked on the earth, 
Isaiah wrote these really powerful words speaking of Jesus. He was oppressed and afflicted. This is speaking of Jesus going to the cross. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And if you remember, Jesus, when he stood before Herod and when he stood before Pilate, in both cases, they tried to get him to speak. Uh, Pilate said to him, don't you realize I have the power of life and death over you? I can take your life right now. And Jesus, can you imagine the crowd yelling, crucify? And Pilate asking him, are you the king of the Jews? In other words, are you trying to lead an insurrection here? All Jesus needs to do is say no. That's all he needs to do, no. The crowd is yelling at the top of their lungs, crucify, crucify, crucify. And Pilate asked the question in front of everybody, are you the king of the Jews? Are you trying to lead an insurrection? Are you doing this? Can you imagine the crowd suddenly going silent, thinking the next words are going to give us what we want? or he's going to walk out of this situation. And it's deadly silence. And Jesus has the opportunity to speak, and he says nothing. And Pilate asks him one more time, don't you realize I have the power to take your life? And then Jesus says this, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down voluntarily right now. And it fulfills a prophecy but I think, man, if you read through the lines of that story, to think sometimes silence can be louder than screaming. The power of silence. The Bible is full of stories. If you read them in the context of silence, there's so many of them. Let me give you three just quick stories about silence and maybe how it can help you to understand Silence and what silence can be used for and how you can use silence to your advantage to overcome the enemy, to draw closer to God, to strengthen your faith. Or I guess silence could do, remember it's a double-edged sword. Silence could cause you to crumble in your faith. Silence could cause you to reject the promises of God. It's that double-edged sword and you get to decide. What do you believe about silence? Um, so Jonah. Jonah's a character in the Old Testament. His whole story is based around God trying to get him to go to the people of Nineveh and preach repentance to them, and he does not like them. He does not want to go that way. Uh, he, he is actually bigoted towards these people, and he, he doesn't want anything to do with them. So God says, go west, and he gets on a boat that's going east. He's going the exact opposite direction from God, and here's what happens. On that boat... Uh, God sends a storm, and it's not just a storm. It is a rocking storm that by the minute is getting worse and worse and worse. So bad that these uh, old salt sailors, old-time guys who are not on metal boats and are not, they've got no computer. These are guys who know how to sail, so if they get nervous in a storm, it must be a storm. That's all I'm trying to... And in the storm, it is so bad... They begin to chuck stuff over the side to lighten the boat. And then they wake everybody up. They gather all the passengers. And this is what they say to them. Uh, whoever you worship, whoever your God is, begin to pray to your God. Because if something doesn't happen, we're all going to die out here. We're going to drown. And they find Jonah asleep in the boat in a storm. And they can't believe it. So they wake him up and they say, dude, you need to be praying right. And this is bad. And Jonah says this. It's only going to get worse. And so here's what you need to do. Pick me up and throw me over. 
And they can't reconcile that. We're not going to murder you. We can't do that. So they try everything they can to lighten the boat. And the Bible says the storm gets worse and worse and worse. And finally, it's so bad that they decide there's no choice. And they pick them up and throw them up. Here's what the Bible says. Instantly, it stopped. Can you imagine what that just... Like, I don't... Does a, you know, do the clouds... Whoa, I, what happens? I don't know. But so here, Jonah's story doesn't end there. The Bible says that God had prepared a big fish. Uh, God can go to great lengths to get our attention. And it's in that place where God's trying to get our attention, listen to me, that silence is not a weapon but a tool that God can use to get you to cry out. So we'll pick the story up right here. Uh, Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, and then we'll go immediately into Jonah chapter 2. The first. So it's only three verses that tell this part of the story. The Lord provided, remember they've thrown him over. The Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, which is a reference to Jesus being in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. And then we go right into uh, chapter 2. Now, here's the silence. And just look at this. From inside the fish. Okay, where is he? Inside the fish. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. And this is what he said. In my distress. Is that an understatement? In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. Just real quick. All right. If you need me, do I believe it's true? Yes. You might be sitting out there thinking, Pastor, maybe it's hyperbole. Maybe it's an illustration. Regardless of whether you think it's literal or not, I do. But even if you don't, can we agree on this? That the nature of the story is not about the fish. It's about the silence in the bad situation that Jonah was. And God used it to get his attention. Yes or no? In your silence, God is not saying to you, I'm done with you, I'm through with you, I'm going to get... If God wanted to get him, he could have just drowned him. God's not trying to get him other than to get his attention. He's trying to put him in a situation where he realizes, man, I'm looking down, I'm looking right, I'm lo look up, cry out. Silence should make you cry out. What do you do in silence? Turn inward. Turn away from? You with me? What does silence make you do? Silence should drive you to God. It is in the silence that Jonah cries out and he hears God answers him in the silence. I don't know what it sounds like inside of a fish. Where they're what? what would it sound like? I thought that was creative. I don't know. I, I, I tried to use my imagination I do have a vivid one. There's no question about that. But I just think it's probably got to be quiet inside that fish. It's probably like deathly quiet. And in that quietness and in that really lousy place, Jonah cries out and God hears his prayer. Okay, so I just wrote this. Silence allows us time to process these three things. Silence allows us time to process these three things. One, it allows us to process where we are. A lot of times, man, people have no idea where they, they just know they're in a bad place. Where are you in life? Where are you in space and time? Where are you when it comes to God's plan for your life? Where are you? 
So here's where we live today. We live in the time of fast velocity, bro. Microwave popcorn, outpatient surgery. Drive up windows. Everything is accelerating at an incredibly fast pace and the noise level is just gone high. Silence allows you the time to process, where am I? And when you have nothing but constant noise, you can't think. So maybe you're like, not for me, I can't think. Here's the third thing, our second thing, it allows you to process, why are we where we are? How did I get in this situation? How did I end up here? How, how did my life go in this direction? Sometimes we live so fast with so much going on and we're in such a lousy place, we never think, how did I get myself into this? What is going on? What is God saying? Is this the way my life is? Most of us just lock and load and go on with our lives. Do you ever ask, is this how I want to live my life? Is this the direction it's supposed to be going? And then here's the third thing, that silence allows you time to process what we're going to do about where we are. You know, maybe one of the greatest gifts God's ever given you. This is important, so when you're finished writing, look at me real quick. Finish writing, and then look at me. Maybe one of the greatest gifts God's given you is the ability to choose. To choose how you'll live your life, and who you will serve, and what you will do. And most of us give that choice up to somebody else. You get to choose. You have the power to choose what do you want to do about where you are. I don't know how to say this. I tried to explain it last night. It's just something in my spirit. I can't back it up with a scripture. It's my own experience. Uh, there is something about silence that can lead a person to repentance. We never talk that much about repentance. What is Repentance is that wonderful thing that when you're going in this direction... Right, Your life is not going the way that you want it. The things you're doing, the, the, you can see suddenly that, man, the way that I'm going, I, I am at such velocity, if it doesn't change, it's going to take me 10 years to even slow down. Repentance, biblically, is that if you're going this direction, it allows you to go the other direction. That's repentance. That is the easiest definition of repentance. Something about silence can connect a person to repentance. That when you have an opportunity to realize this is not, not to feel bad. God doesn't want you to feel bad. He doesn't want you just, oh, I'm so sorry. That's not what God wants. God wants you to realize this is not what I want for you. I've got something so much better. Let's go another direction. God doesn't want you just to feel bad. That helps no one. It's called worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow is repentance, which leads to life. Life. Amen. Say life. 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 You want life. Uh, two. Paul and Silas. Silas uh, is one of those like um, characters in the Bible that's mentioned once or twice, but he was a really powerful person. Uh, the book of Acts, the first part of the book of Acts really is about uh, the disciples that walk with Jesus. And then the second part of Acts really tells the story of Paul. 
Uh, Paul was a powerful individual for the gospel, wrote most of the New Testament, uh, saw miraculous, miraculous things. But Paul had uh, traveling companions. Uh, Barnabas was one of those, Silas, Timothy. He had people that were involved in his life that experienced incredible things too, but they're just not the focus of the story. And so we have this little story here about Paul and Silas and silence. Let me just read it to you real quick. This comes from Acts chapter 16. Dude, I've got to kick it into another gear, so I'm going to speak fast, okay? Like some of you are like, you already speak fast. Watch this. All right. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. Here's what happened. They went to this town, and they're there to preach the gospel. And there is a slave girl there who is filled with the demonic. And the demonic had an ability to prophesy the future. So the people who, who owned this girl, for lack of a better word, they owned her. She was a slave. They would make their living off of using this girl to divine the future. So they'd go to the place where the people are and like a tarot card reader or a, a person who, who forecasts the future, they would use this girl. They would ask for money. Do you want to know your future? Pay us a certain amount of money and then she'll tell you. She must have had some ability based on this connection with the demonic. But the story goes like this. They come to this city, and they begin to preach Jesus, and they're being very effective, and this girl listens to them, but the demon inside of her gets stirred up. Now listen to this crazy story. She begins to follow them around wherever they go, and every time they stop to preach, she screams at the top of her lungs, Listen to these two guys! They're preaching about the living God! Now that sounds awesome, except she does it over and over they can't say anything without this woman screaming, Listen to this guy! He's preaching about the living God. I don't know. I would not want any of you to do that while we're in here. <laughs> Never! And she's doing it over and over and over. So it's actually a distraction, and it's actually weird, and they put up with it for two days. And then finally Paul turns around, and he casts the demon out of her, and it knocks her down, but when she comes up, the demon's gone, and she can no longer tell the future. But now the guys who were making money off of her can't make any money. And so they're mad and they stir up the town. And now we pick up the this, this, this story. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. Can you imagine? After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stock. Stop right there. Let me just explain to you. Why are they in the inner cell? Why has he been charged at that time under Roman authority? Here's how they kept prisoners from bribing the guards to let them go. If the guard or the warden lost a prisoner, the penalty was death of that person. And that kept bribery down. Nobody escaped. So here's what they tell him. Okay, you know the penalty... But in this case, dude, we won't just kill you. We'll torture you, man. You will pay the price if you lose these guys. So he puts them in the inner prison, the worst part, and then fastens their, their feet in stocks so they can't even get up. Now their response is really, really interesting. Let's go to the next part of that. About midnight. How is it at your house at midnight? Quiet? Philly, no, the party's just getting going. How is it at midnight? It's quiet. Okay, about midnight. Paul and Silas, their response... So what happened to them was never to think one time, God has abandoned us. God has left us. God has not fulfilled his promise to us. Look at me real quick. This is crazy faith. These guys are either, at, they've been beaten senseless 
or they know something that most people don't know. I'll let you decide. So about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were doing what? So it must have been quiet while they're doing this for the prisoners to be listening, because you can't talk and listen. Marriage 101. Okay. Uh, Suddenly, suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Look at the, uh, the jailer's response. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Why? Because what they were going to do to him was going to be worse than what he would do to him. Ooh, man, think about that. And Paul's watching this. Because <laughs> he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and asked them this improbable. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I heard an African-American preacher preach from that text right there. I mean, man, he, what a preacher. That guy had, he had everything that you needed to preach a message, and he had everybody in his hands. And when he tells this story, he says, the book of Psalms says that the heavens belong to the Lord and the earth is his footstool. And long about midnight, these two men began to sing, and God began to tap his foot to the beat. And the earth, which is his footstool, began to shake, and the prison rattled, and the chains fell off, and the freedom of God. And a white guy can't even come close. (laughs) Not even close, man. But I love the illustration. I love what he was saying. But the point about it all is they made a choice in the silence. The silence didn't cause them to shut up, to feel sorry for themselves, to reject God, to go, oh, they did... They used crazy faith in the silence, and they got a crazy result out of it. What result do you want out of the silence? Uh, Maybe that's the thing to... Silence allows God's people to define the atmosphere. What you're unwilling to define, the enemy will quickly. So you say what this is about, and you say it based on what you know about God. Jesus promised God will never leave you and forsake you. God promises that he's for you and not against you. So you get to decide in the silence what's true, what the devil is saying or what God is saying. Use faith. Here's the third one. Silence ultimately is a test of intimacy. Dan, listen to this. Listen to this. The test of any good friendship is silence. When you have a friend and if you want to know whether or not it's a deep friendship, every conversation has a place where there's silence. And if you have to keep talking, you don't have a deep friendship. Think about it. Think about it for a moment. There's a place, when you have a good friendship, there's a place where you can rest inside the friendship. You don't have to perform, and you don't have to act, and you don't have to try. You can just be who you are. Do you get what I'm saying? Silence ultimately is a test of intimacy. Um, Let me just prove to you I know what I'm talking about. Those that have been here any length of time... um, Man, a frailty that I had a year and a half ago, I had a heart attack. Immediately after a heart attack, weird, you can't drive. You can't 
exercise. You, you really you can't do anything except lay there. It's a funny place to be at. All the things you took for granted now become so important. The trees, the sky, to wake up, to reach over and touch your wife. All the little things that your heart does throughout the day that you never pay attention to, now you feel every one of them. What is it? It was just the weirdest place to be at. And here's, it was so quiet. People are like, don't be loud, he'll have a heart attack. It's just so quiet. And out of that silence were two choices. God, this is what I get. This is what I deserve. This is how you treat your people? Or, God, I need you right now like I've never needed you before. God, I'm scared. God, I'm afraid. God, I feel out of control and I don't know what's going to happen to me. And I don't know how to get out of this bed and go forward. Is this going to happen again? I don't know what to do. And this great choice of trusting God. And for those of you who know, the last year and a half may be the best year and a half I've ever pastored. My ability to connect with people and to feel compassion until you know you don't know. You get what I mean by that? You just don't know. Terry, our own pastor Terry, lost his wife earlier this year, married 45 years and loses her to cancer. God, we prayed for a miracle and we just didn't get the one that we were praying for. I think she got healed, but not the way we asked. And I've watched my friend experience silence. He goes home to a house that's very quiet. And it seems like Fridays are a bad day for him. The devil has a field day with Terry on Fridays for whatever reason. And I try to text him. Throughout the week, just at different times. How you doing, man? Praying for you, thinking about you. Just break up the silence. And I realized, he'll tell me, uh, you know, like um, I, I caught him on a couple of Fridays and he started writing. Seems like Fridays are a really struggle for me. So now I make sure that I contact him on Fridays. And then this is what he says to me. It's like you're hearing from God. No, I'm just listening to you. <laughs> Terry's going through the test of silence right now and what it means. And he's passing it with flying colors. Because it doesn't mean that God's left him or forsaken him or done him wrong or been unfaithful. Can you, can you be with me? Just agreeing with me doesn't mean anybody's going to get cancer that you know. Just think about it. It just, he's passing the test of silence. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 7 is probably the most known, influential, or uh, direct scripture on silence being a part of life and a part of our relationship with each other and with God. And uh, Ecclesiastes 3, 7, the second part of the verse just says this. Read it with me. Count to three. One, two, three. A time to be and a time to All it means is there's a rhythm to life. And there's a time to talk. And there's a time to stop. And it doesn't mean anything's wrong. 
It doesn't mean there's any failure. It doesn't mean there's any rejection. It doesn't mean you've done anything. It's just the natural rhythm of life. There's a time in the silence where God speaks louder. What will you do with the silence? It's like when you go home today. If everything I'm saying is not your experience, what will you choose? If you're like, if I'm touching on something like, you know, I'm in a, it's a tight place. It's a deep place. It's a quiet place. And I don't know my way out of it. What will you do with it now? God doesn't want you to suffer in silence. Isaiah 54. The first verse says, You who are barren, cry out. If it's not producing, that's not the time to get quiet. That's the time to use faith and cry out to God in the silence. that make any sense? I'm done. I'll make this statement and I'll pray. Sometimes the best way to combat the enemy is just to do the opposite of what he's telling you to do. So when he tells you, shut up. Don't cry out. Don't trust God. Do the exact opposite of that thing right there. Jesus, thank you for hearing us. Thank you that your word is true and it is right. And there are people, Lord, uh, all across services today that will hear this message who are dealing with silence in different ways. Some are dealing with it and it feels like a curse right now. And it might be a test, or it might just be a place in life. It might be that God's trying to get our attention, but I know for sure it's not because God has left them. So help right now. And some, God, I've touched a place where they need to ask, why am I where I am? And what am I going to do about where I am? And they need silence right now to process that. Listen to me. Eyes are closed. Ears, just listen. Maybe what you need is silence. Maybe you need to stop the noise. And in silence, get before God. And figure out. Sometimes we're so afraid of the silence. And in the silence. David said, I was in the silence of a pit. When I cried out to God and he heard my cry and he rescued me and he put my feet on solid ground. Jesus cried out, God, where are you? If Jesus can say that, it's okay for you to say it. Not accusatory, but a prayer. God, where are you right now? God, I'm not hearing you. God, I'm not sensing. So God, help me to hear and help me to see. What will you do with what I'm saying? Perhaps the opportunity right now to make a choice and to say no longer will I empower a lie. 
but I will embrace truth. Perhaps that's where repentance comes into this message. God, I've believed a lie for too long. Give me the grace of changing my mind, of going another direction, of walking towards what you want rather than away from what you want. Here's a holy prayer. God, help me. Help me. Help us. Speak to us. Thank you for hearing our prayers, God. Thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Jay's going to play a song right now. And so I think the natural thing for many of us is like, hey, service is over. Pastor said, amen, we're done. Don't be done yet. Let me pastor you. Stay for a minute. This is a seed that's been cast into your heart. And Jesus said the devil comes immediately to steal the seed back unless it's planted deep. Will you let God plant something inside of you right now? Take a moment and just worship. And let God plant this and he'll release you in just a moment. Thank you.